We have uh, the privilege this morning to have Dr. Alan Ehler, as we mentioned before earlier in the service, that Pastor Jeff is out of town, so visiting with family. He'll be back next week. Uh, but we are honored this morning to have Dr. Alan Ehler, and I'm looking at my phone because I didn't say this earlier, and I want to I make sure I say it correct. Dr. Alan Ehler is a professor, but he's also a dean at Southeastern, uh, Dean of College of Christian Ministries and Religion. I'm going to say that again because that's a mouthful. The Dean of College of Christian Ministries and Religion, Religion at Southeastern University. You are in for a treat this morning. He is ready to give the word. Would you clap your hands and welcome to the platform, Dr. Ehler. Well, thank you, Randy. And uh, Randy's been a huge gift for us. He's been our worship leader here for just a little bit less than a year. And I've just noticed you, you do a great job every week, at least, in the presence of the Lord. And really appreciate you and the team, all of the worship team. And uh, it's, it's a joy to be speaking with you. My wife, Kira, is here. I don't know, Kira, if you can stand up. People can see you're in the dark right there, so do that. If you haven't got a chance to meet Kira yet, I encourage you to do that. She's, uh, uh, she's, she's a joy to spend time with. I've gotten to spend 28 years with her and loving every day of it. So uh, it's great. This is our home church, and my role as dean, I do a lot of traveling, sometimes speaking, sometimes connecting with students at, at other churches. So I'm not always able to be here every Sunday, but the Lakeside is definitely our home church, and we love Pastor Jeff, and of course, he's visiting grandchildren. If you know Jeff, there's nothing more dear to Jeff's heart. He loves his kids too, but his grandkids, and so he's having a great time there, freezing in Illinois and uh, spending time with them. But he invited me to speak, and, and it, it's great to be with you. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. How many of you got to be together with family uh, on Thanksgiving? It's not, usually that's a good thing, but that's not always a good thing, isn't it? We had some students who came to us and said, you know, I'm not really excited about going home. And, and it's, it's tough sometimes. There's just something about relationships that, that can be a challenge. A few weeks ago, Kira and I were coming out of our local Publix down Imperial Lakes and walking out, heading back to our car and heard that horrible sound of metal on metal and turned to look to see a car rolling over the top of another. And it was only, it was, they were both small sedans, but this mid-90s sedan was, when I saw it, the passenger side wheel was on the roof of the other car, hit the windshield, hit the, the hood, bounced to the pavement, and saw a female driver take off as quickly as possible outside of the parking lot. But not before some wise bystanders were able to pull out their phones and get some pictures of that license plate. I got the license plate, I got the license plate. We all wondered, what in the world happened? Who, how's the guy in the other car? Is he okay? And saw him pull up his dented car, phone to his ear. Sure, he was calling 911. And sure enough, in just a couple of minutes, he was surrounded by two police cars, or sheriff deputies right there. And everybody who was out there was like, okay, what just happened? And so we all kind of wandering closely. Should we ask? Can we find out what's going on? And the man called out to us from his car saying, it's okay, just a mad ex-girlfriend. That's a true story. And it must have been some kind of mad for her to risk damage to her car, default on her insurance, and maybe even time in jail for fleeing the flea of an accident, of a scene of an accident, just to get revenge. But you think about it, relationships are tough. And we've got all this technology that, that has solved all kinds of illnesses, all kinds of problems. Think about what you carry around in your mobile phone, everything that you can cover, yet we still can't get our relationships straight. It's kind of like this lady who told her friends, you know, I'm just not feeling good about relationships anymore. Anytime I meet a man, I got to ask myself, do I want my kids spending every other weekend with this guy? 
Because, you know, it, it's, it's a challenge, but it's been a challenge. And our problem is, like any time you got some new piece of technology or equipment, you can't figure it out, it's always good to read the instruction manual. So it's about time we look at the instruction manual for our lives to see how we need to be living out our relationships. We're going to do that today by turning to Ephesians chapter 4. If you've got your Bible, it's a little dark to read a paper Bible out there. We'll have the words on the screen, but if you've got an electronic one, you're welcome to turn there. We'll be looking at verses 25 to the end of that chapter, verse 32. And Ephesians is a, is a wonderful book because it's only six short chapters, yet it boils down so much of life. You've got the first three chapters, and the Apostle Paul writes, and he describes what has happened to us, what Jesus Christ has done for us, and this amazing thing we call salvation, that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He starts in chapter 2, verse 1. But God, even when we were dead, raised us up, seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. And we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's incredible news. But you know, our salvation isn't just about this me and God relationship. In chapter 4 through chapter 6, he talks about the us relationships and the stuff that happens because of that. And if we want to live life the way it's meant to be lived, we only not be concerned about the vertical, but also the horizontal and our relationships with one another. And let me tell you, these verses here are loaded with stuff. In fact, I boiled it down into five main traits of healthy relationships. I had each one start with a T to help you remember it. But God already has them laid out here very clearly in this wonderful little pattern. For each one of these, you're going to see one thing to do, one thing not to do, and why we should do it. And I, I find it really interesting to see how, of course, being a scholar, I do lots of study. In my role as dean, I get uh, just an incredible position of overseeing all the Bible, theology, ministry, missions curriculum at Southeastern. And you may know, we were founded 81 years ago in New Brockton, Alabama, Shield of Faith Bible Institute, and then moved down to Lakeland just after World War II. And we were all about training ministers. So my part is the traditional part of what Southeastern was about. But these last 16 years, we've seen incredible growth. Now 5,800 students, not just here at Lakeland, but more than 50 extension sites around the country, a lot of online students, a lot of dual enrollment. We now have 15 master's degree, two doctorates. In my area, we just launched a doctor ministry this fall. And, and we just incredible things taking place. But you know, in this whole world of academia, people always studying things to kind of see and understand how the world works. And the leading business school in America today is called the Wharton School. It's affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. And one of their scholars is a guy named Simon Sinek. And he wrote several books and he gave a talk, what's called a TED Talk. If you ever go online, you can look at these. These are ideas worth sharing. They're incredibly influential. 18-minute presentations about something that these guys have discovered. His is the number three most viewed TED Talk of all time. And basically it comes down to start with why. You want to get somebody to do something, you don't just tell them what to do. How many of you love it when say, do it just because I say so? Does that ever work? No. You know, but you tell me why to do it. Okay, you convince me through the why, I'm more likely to do that. Well, guess what? What Simon Sinek discovered in 2012, the Apostle Paul told us in AD 57. So we can figure this out. We can go out and do this already. There's a lot of good whys for these principles. So as we take a look at this passage, I want to invite you. We're going to dig into something that affects every single one of us where we live. These things about relationships, 
And it's so tempting to say, well, you know, my spouse needs to hear this sermon or my kid needs to hear this sermon. My dad needs to hear this sermon. My boss needs to hear this sermon. Well, instead of that, you know, they may or may not be here today. Let's take a look at our own lives. Let's be open to allowing God to form and shape us because we can't always do something about those other people but we can always do something about ourselves. So let's take a look and see and allow God to speak to us through his word this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to just convict us on maybe one or two areas that we might be able to change in our behavior, in our attitudes that will change our relationships and our overall quality of life. Sound like a deal? Let's turn to verse 25, Ephesians chapter four. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us the instruction manual for life. And I pray, Lord, that you would breathe life to these words that I speak. And you would speak to each of our hearts, Lord, through your word, by your Holy Spirit. And help us, Lord, to be people who live the love that you've called us to live and experience the good things that come because we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, five things, all starting with the letter T. The first one is truth. Paul starts by saying, put off falsehood. Sometimes it can be tempting to tell lies. Kind of like the woman who was pulled over for a police officer for speeding. The officer walked up to her window and he said, ma'am, can I see your driver's license? She looked at him and said, I don't have one. He looked at her and said, you don't have one? No, I lost it five times for drunk driving. You don't have a driver's license. Well, can I see your registration in in your title? I, I don't have that either. You don't have a registration. No, sir, this isn't my car. It's not your car? No, I stole it. You stole this car. Yes, I stole the car and I killed the owner and I hacked him up and put him into plastic bags. He's in the trunk. Would you like to see it? The officer says, steps away, pulls out his phone and calls for backup. "Uh, Sir, we need some help over here. Right away, come over here. In a few minutes, there were four squad cars come and surrounded the woman, making sure she was not able to leave. The senior officer got up out of his car, walked over, said, ma'am, I'm gonna need you to step away from the car. She gets up, is there a problem, officer? Uh, Yes, it seems that you were speeding. My officer pulled you over. He said that you killed the owner of this car and his body's in your trunk. Is that true? Can Can you open your trunk for me? Yes, sir. She opened the trunk and there's nothing in the trunk. Uh, Where's the owner of this car? I'm the owner of the car. You're the owner of the car? Yes. Well, can I see your registration? Certainly. She pulls out the registration, gets it out of the trunk of the car, hands it to him right there. Okay. Rebecca Smith, that's you? Yes, sir. Here's here's my driver's license. Would you like to see it? Looks at it. Rebecca Smith. Yeah, uh, it's your picture there. Well, ma'am, 
my officer here was telling, just told me that you killed the owner of this car, you hacked him up, put him in the trunk of the car, that you've lost your license five times for drunk driving. She said, well, I bet you that liar told you I was speeding too. Sometimes like this woman, it can be tempting to lie in order to protect ourselves or to try to get ahead. But the problem is in the long run, it doesn't work. Think back. Remember the Enron scandal? Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling came up with a great idea, the plan that was working there for a while. But when things stopped working, they were enjoying the high life a little bit too much. So they fudged all their financial reports so that people would continue to invest in their company. And so what Wall Street was showing and what they were reporting as official did not match the realities of a company that was losing money. By the time they got caught, people, investors lost $63.4 billion dollars. And they both spent some time in jail after long court battles. Of course, that's happened so many other times. People think, I'm going to get ahead if I tell a lie. Sometimes we do it because we want to win. We want to get revenge. We want to hurt other people. We want to come out on top. But we never win by speaking falsehood. Instead, Paul says, speak the truth, each one of you with his brother. And when you think about what motivation affects us in our interactions that are unhealthy in these relational conflicts, in telling lie, and a lot of the other things we're going to look at. So often, it's what I call a need to win, a desire to win. My wife here is wearing her Seattle Seahawks jersey. For the first time, we came from Seattle three and a half years ago, and we still cheer for that team. We may not be too popular in Raymond James this afternoon, but this will be our first time to actually see our team play live. It'll be kind of weird to do it in, in the opponent's stadium, but you know, some other people, you'll be cheering for your team this afternoon, whoever they may be. We love this game thing, don't we? You know, it's like at the end of the game, there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser. But we carry that mindset into our relationships sometimes. We want to have a winner and a loser. And I'm going to win and you're going to lose. And that's how it's going to be. But think about what that means. Sometimes in your marriage relationships, you get into that. But can I tell you something? If your spouse loses, you lost. Even if you won, you lost. I learned that early on. You know, that isn't how it works. And that's what Paul's saying. You are members of one another. That's the key word there. The idea of who we are is some one substance of the whole. We need to keep that in mind, whether in our church relationship or work relationship or family relationships. We are members of one another. We are on the same team. So when we run into a conflict, my goal is not to make you lose, but instead the opponent is the problem, is the issue. And we're going to work on this together. So if we can change our mindset, we can solve a whole ton of relational challenges. But if we speak the truth with one another, something else is going to happen. There will be tempers. Look at this, tempers. Look at verse 26. Paul starts with a command, be angry. I've looked this up in Greek. Guess what? It's still a command. Now, doesn't that sound weird? A command to be angry? I mean, you usually think of anger as not something good. And a lot of times it isn't. And that's why Paul adds on to say, be angry and do not sin. 
Because anger is actually a gift of God. It was created on purpose because there are times you need to get angry. I mean, think about Jesus. He got angry at the money changers in the temple. He got angry at the Pharisees who who put an unjust system in place, who put them on top and everybody else down at the bottom. And there are times you need to have your anger to respond to those situations. But the question is, how do you handle it? And that's why the what to do is to do not let the sun go down on your anger. As we work out our anger, we don't let that sun go down on it. What does that mean? You get it resolved. You run into a conflict situation. If you tell the truth, somebody's going to get mad at times, but we sit down together. We acknowledge the issue. We talk it out. We work it out. We acknowledge we're on the same team. We're going to come to the issue at the end. And that's why we make that commitment to do that before the sun sets, before we go to bed. Once uh, I had a pastor who told me, you know what? Yeah, my wife and I, early on in our marriage, we're going to fulfill Ephesians 4.26. We're not going to let the sun go down in our anger. Of course, we didn't go to sleep for three days one time, but you know, we got everything worked out because there are times that it takes some effort to get it worked out. But notice what he says. If you don't get it worked out correctly, the devil gets a place. Some translations say a foothold or an opportunity. But the word there is the word for place, topos, like topography. And the the idea is the devil gets his foot in the door of your life. Because so many times when conflict happens, we tend to go to either fight or flight. And when it's fight, it's I win, you lose, or you win, I lose. I'll make sure I'm not losing here. And so it's just boom, boom, boom. We don't get that word all. But other people, some of us are raised in a way where it's never good to be angry, never good to have a fight. So I'm just gonna hide. I'm just gonna pretend there's no conflict. I'll put a smile on my face. But guess what happens? The devil works his way into our heart because it didn't get resolved. The issue's still there. The problem's still there. And sometimes it's what the book of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness. And there can be bitterness. I mean, some of you have grown up in a family like that where, yeah, okay, we never worked out our problems. We didn't have outright fights, but we dealt with a lot of pain and a lot of garbage because we were not able to get it worked out. Maybe you grew up in a family where your dad was one of those you could never confront him. I mean, he was always right and I would never, ever, you, my kid, can never talk back to me. But what do you do if you're on a family road trip and your dad's one of those who like to pull out his phone and text while he's driving and takes you up the Colorado Rockies and you're going there up the canyon road up through the mountains and, and he's answering a text and not aware that the road's about to make a bend to the left and there's a cliff straight in front of you and you have to take the risk. Do I tell dad and point out, dad, we're going to wreck, we're going off the edge. Or do you go off the edge? You risk his anger or do you risk dying? Sometimes telling the truth provokes anger, but we get it worked out and it has its place. So we tell the truth, deal with our temper. The third thing is our things. Paul says, let him who steals, steal no longer. And this seems like it would be kind of obvious. I mean, who's gonna be stealing in today's world? But it's not just finances. There's so many other areas. And instead, we need to make this transition not just to stop stealing, but also he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. 
Another one of those scholars from the, the University of Pennsylvania School of Wharton is a guy named Adam Grant. He's written some books. His first book was called Givers and Takers. And he did a study on the leading uh, business leaders in America today. And he identified them in two different groups. One he calls takers. And, and you know, so many things it, it would seem like in our American society, it's all about those who take, take, take. It's all about me, me, me. I'm gonna get, get, get. And those who would seem to be the most successful or the best at taking. And he said, no, that's not the truth. The absolute best are those who have otherish givers. That is, they are focused on what can I do for other people? What is my purpose? Why am I here? How can this business fulfill its purpose? And how can I help other people? They actually do better than those who are always focused on what can I get out of this? I think about your relationships. How many of you love, love being in a relationship with an incredibly selfish person? Always want to take, 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 take. None of us do, right? Yet we find it in ourselves. What can I get out of it? And it's this amazing mystery. Just like Randy was talking about on our offering time. You know, Jesus promises, give and it shall be given to you. Press down, shaken together until it runs over. The mystery is as you focus on transitioning from being one who takes what is not yours to going to this next step of working hard to provide for yourself to meet your own needs, but then transitioning beyond that to saying, why can I do more so I can have more to give to help other people who have needs? Then I get God's greatest blessing of all. And so some of you here today, you're already living by this. You've already experienced this. You may be an entrepreneur who started a business saying, I'm going into business with God and God's blessing you in huge ways. But some of you may just be starting out in life. But can you, can you look at this and say, your life, you are not just here to take, take, take. But God's put you on this planet to be an agent of blessing so that as he gives to you, you can give to others. And part of that is your work, you making a contribution, putting yourself to that. I mean, the word here for work is a word for toil. It means working hard. And you work hard with the end in mind to make a difference. And as you change your mindset, and, and not just for finances, but in a relationship, in your time, in everything you do, everything you give, you can be a part of making a huge difference. And that goes to the fourth T as well, which is talk. Talk here. What, we start with what not to do. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Kind of like what you always tell your kids. <clears throat> Whenever you, you're trying to train them what to say, if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all, right? Makes sense, still works, doesn't it? Because think about how false the other thing kids often say is. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Oh, really? I've been hurt hard by some words. How about you? Yeah, words, cut, words start wars. Words can be incredibly painful. I mean, I've seen and experienced that myself in life growing up, how much incredible pain can come out of that. But instead, the opposite is true. So when we shift to the what to do, he goes on to say, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Why? So that it may give grace to those who hear. And when we hear the word grace in church, how many times we think about salvation, like I was talking about chapter two, talks about in Ephesians. By grace, you have been saved through grace. Great grace, you've been saved through faith. 
And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we know that. We don't deserve heaven. We've all done wrong things. We all deserve hell instead. But Jesus himself gave his life as a gift, took our place so every one of us who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And yet what Paul is saying in chapter four is your words can give grace. Your words can be a gift to other people. The faculty I get to work with at Southeastern are incredible. They're, they're incredible scholars. They're recognized as leading scholars in Pentecostalism, and, and yet they love their students. And I love just watching how they interact with students. I'll overhear conversations, and I'll hear them speak life to them. And they'll point out things that those students do well, the opportunities they have. And, and we even have students who are part of the worship team here. And I, I just love seeing, and I, having been down that road, I can see what God's going to do in their lives. And whenever a faculty member speaks to a student about to graduate to say, you know what, you've got this incredible gift. I think God's going to do this in you. That can make a difference. I mean, think through in your own life. Has there been a time in your life that somebody said just what you needed to hear at the right time? That gave you the courage to maybe take a step of faith, maybe launch a business, take a job, start something new, maybe to overcome discouragement? Maybe there's been a lot of people who've done that for you. Do you know that you can do that for others? That's what Paul is saying. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Don't let the garbage come out. Watch that. But instead, speak the words that can be a gift that other people need to hear. You can give them a gift. You can make an incredible impact in their lives for the rest of their lives. So watch what you say. Well, then finally... We talk about truth, managing your temper, your things, your talk, and your tears. Because tears are a part of a relationship. If there's going to be truth, there will be pain, there will be anger. If there will be anger, there will be hurt. It's real. The question is, what do you do with the pain that you've received? This one starts with the why. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You ever felt grief? Just like, oh, just that, oh, something horrible happened that didn't need to happen. Do you know that the Holy Spirit feels that when you don't handle your relationships well? Maybe you're part of that family. You're like the kid who didn't want to go home for Thanksgiving. Maybe you're not looking forward to Christmas because you're going to be with somebody and and you can feel that. God feels that way too. I've been to a few churches. You walk in the door, you feel the spiritual icicles in the place because there are people who haven't resolved their conflicts. There's an old cliche that's sad but true. It says, hurt people hurt people. And when you've been hurt, when you've been wronged, it's so easy to say, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to make you pay. And so we respond by this horrible list that we read in verse 21, verse 31. Instead of the not, we do this. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Malice means I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to get even. Bitterness means I'm going to hold this in. Wrath, I'm going to get even. Anger, you're going to see me explode. But do you win? If you let your anger out you cause somebody else to hurt, do you really win? Instead, Paul says, be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You and I don't deserve Jesus' forgiveness. We didn't deserve to have Jesus die on the cross for us. But he did it anyway. And I'm not trying to say that the wrong that was done to you was right. No big deal. Not true at all. I don't know what you've been through. I mean, I know my own pain. And I know a lot of people who suffered far more than I ever have. But I can tell you the answer is not getting revenge. The answer is not holding bitterness. The answer is not making them pay. That doesn't work. The answer is forgiving. I've seen so many people hold bitterness and say, I'm never talking to that person again as long as I live because of what they've done for me. You know, talk to him 20 years later and the other person was like, I don't know why he doesn't talk to me anymore. In fact, I had a friend come to me just last week, asked to get things worked out because I said something that offended him several months ago and I never even was aware that I had done it. Holding bitterness doesn't solve anything, but forgiveness opens the door for restored relationships, and that's why Jesus died for us. So as you take a look at these five things, there may be one or more of these that apply to you, and it may be overall the whole package. But it requires us to change our mentality. Instead of looking at life and all the relationships as fill me, fill me, fill me, You know, we've got the aching void inside of us. But God made us that way. And no other relationship can ever fill us except Jesus alone. Look at the next two verses over in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. Yeah, I grew up in a family that so many good things about it, but there was unresolved conflict for generations. And there was a way of holding bitterness that I picked up in myself. And I was aware of this aching hole of need even as a young teenager, but I'd seen enough movies that I was convinced, oh, I needed a girlfriend. You know, the movies always ended with a boy and girl fall in love and live happily ever after. But I was such a geek, I was convinced there'd be no woman who would ever love me. In fact, even to this day, I look up and see Kira, and I I still don't know how I came out on that deal. But there's, as I grew up and eventually said, I got to do something about this at age 18, finally found a girlfriend we fell in love with each other and she gave me everything even by Hollywood's definition and yet I still felt that void inside of me and it's a very dangerous thing you see I grew up in a church that never really taught the gospel I mean we told stories about Jesus but never were we hurt did we hear that you need to make a decision to say yes to Jesus that required admitting that you had fallen short that you needed his forgiveness we got a new youth pastor in my junior year of high school who told us that, and that the Bible is true. I'm like, wow, okay, well, I better do this. But I never fully surrendered because I still was convinced that girlfriend thing was the answer. But after graduating high school, I was aware that there was still that missing void. And so I said a prayer to God, and I said, God, if what we are doing in our relationship is wrong, let me know. We, I just grew up just north of Denver, and my youth pastor led us on a vacation Bible school missions trip to the Navajo Indian Reservation in northern Arizona. 
Stayed in a town called Kayenta, and after church that first Sunday, I went rock climbing on this rocks north of town, a place called The Toes, and I was going down the backside by myself, not a really good thing to do. Came to a place where I had to lower myself down by one sandstone handhold. I mean, a little platform about half the size of this table. And the next step down was about 10 feet to about a one foot square and another couple hundred foot drop beyond that. And thought, if I tried to jump down, I'm dead. So I turned around, reached up to try and pull myself up and that sandstone handhold came off of my hands. It was against a smooth wall. There's no way out. And for the first time in my life, I heard the voice of God. You say, was it audible? And say, no, it was a lot louder than that. I say, remember what you asked me? What you're doing is not good. But more than that, I want all of you. And when God asked me to surrender everything that I was to Him, there was no guarantee that I would get back anything. And yet, as I stood there, I said, if God loves me enough to answer my prayer, how can I say no? And I paced back and forth a few minutes, but eventually made the decision, okay, Lord, you've got all of me. And I turned around and I reached up, and I don't know how to this day, but I got up to the top of that cliff, came down the front, and had been forever changed. Started reading my Bible and praying and turning to Jesus first to meet those emotional voids in my life. But then understood, I'm not here on this planet for me. He put me here for him and for others. Called me to ministry, had the privilege of pastoring an incredible church north of Seattle, then teaching full-time at our sister school near there before getting invited to come here three and a half years ago. <laughs> what a joy. We'd never trade it for anything. But that joy only comes when we change our mind. God's math may not make sense by the world's standard, but when we start, stop saying, okay, it's all about me, 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 and say, okay, Lord, I get from you so that I can give to others, then we can begin to experience life the way it's meant to be lived and get that joy beyond expression. So as we close out, I just invite you to just bow your head for a minute. You may be here this morning and never yet made that step of faith. I just can invite you to just say yes to Jesus like I did so long ago, like so many others have. Hundreds of millions around the world. Your sins are forgiven. Your place in heaven is secured. You know you'll be with him forever. But maybe you've been made that decision. You've been walking with him, but your relationships are still messed up. Maybe you've been one who've always been blaming others. And I'm not saying what they've done is right they're not here you are maybe there's one or more of these things that are things that you can work on and that applies to all of us say lord would you help me in this area would you help me to live differently and pray that he would bring it to your mind every time you interact with other people this week be a chance to you to give a gift of grace rather than take And then there may be some of you who have some real, real relational challenges that need God's supernatural help. And this is the season. And if that's the case, I'm going to invite you as we just take this minute to pray to just invite God to come and do what only He can do to bring that healing and that restoration. Lord, you see our hearts. And Lord, you've made us relational people. 
Even though our relationships are messy, God, you're a relational God. You love us. Eternally existence in three persons. You came and you died to restore the relationship that we can have with you. And also, Lord, you've come so that restore the relationships that we have with others. I just pray for any of those who need to know you here this morning that they would, that you would touch them and you would work in your power of your spirit to restore and to bring that, first of all, relationship with you. And then others of us, Lord, would you work in us and help us, Lord, to model Christ-like relationships, to walk in love just as you loved us and gave yourself up for us. Would we give ourselves up for others and live other-centered? Would we be a part of that? And then, Lord, for those who need just a supernatural healing, I pray it would happen, that this Christmas season would be the greatest season of all. And Lord, we lift up our pastor. Thank you for Jeff and his family. Pray your blessings on them as they freeze up there in Illinois and pray to be able to come back safely for a great celebration next week. And pray also for our pastor, Wayne Blackburn, and the rest of the team at Victory. Thank you for what you're doing through this church. And Lord God, would your, your grace just continue to flow and have a huge impact here and around the world. We love you, Lord. We give you praise and glory. As we go out from this place, would we walk in your love, in your strength, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming to Victory Lakeside. I look forward to seeing you next week. God bless you.